Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. It is Monday morning, that means we're back with our weekly CIO strategy snapshot conversation. Uh, Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. So Jason, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend, the final weekend of August. I know summer is coming to a close, uh, though great to be with you to start a new week. Looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Danny. It's good to be here for another week. Absolutely. So, uh, Jason, I do want to start by highlighting the latest UBS House View update. This is for the month of September, the monthly letter, as well as the investment strategy guide are fresh off the press. Any changes, Jason, you can speak to from the latest update? There are no major changes to our asset class views or even kind of scenarios for, you know, the, the economic and market outlook for the next six to 12 months. I mean, by and large, it would sort of stay the course in that regard. If we think about the basic setup that we've had for markets this year, it really hasn't changed. Uh, and the way I think of it is that, you know, as long as inflation is, is far too high and the labor market is tight, uh, the Fed's going to want to keep tightening financial conditions in order to slow growth enough to cool the economy, bring down inflation. If they're doing that, that's not a you know, great environment for, for risk assets. It makes it challenging. It makes it volatile. And that's what we've experienced for much of this year. And that's likely to be the, the kind of overarching market dynamic kind of going forward. So that hasn't changed. And it won't change or we wouldn't expect it to change until there's clear and compelling evidence that inflation is trending back towards you know, 2%. And I think that's going to be at least a few months away, uh, you know, or maybe not even into, into next year. So that market dynamic is kind of with us, at least in the very near term of the next month or two. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, you know, no kind of changes to the asset class preferences. You know, we're kind of advising clients to not make many big market direction calls, not to kind of be going overweight and sort of, you know, thinking, you know, we'll start a new bear mar- or bull market, but also not getting overly bearish uh, um, and thinking that we're going to pull back and set all time, you know, kind of new lows in this in this uh, you know sell off this year. So sticking more kind of towards your long term plan. And the fact is, we still remain in a very highly uncertain environment. There are multiple paths that we could take for the economy and for the markets over the next year. And I think you have to kind of think about creating a sort of diversified portfolio to kind of deal with those multiple possibilities. Maybe we can dive a bit further into the CIO letter. Within, there are four scenarios presented. Can you take a few moments here, Jason, to walk us through each of these scenarios? And I see that CIO had assigned probabilities to each, if you can walk us through that as well. Well, there you know, we have a, a base case, a bull case, and then essentially two different bear cases. So four different scenarios or paths we can take going forward over the next you know year approximately. Uh, but the destination is essentially three kind of kind of outcomes, like one for the for the base case, one for the bull, uh, and then the bear cases kind of end up ultimately somewhere for the market, sort of a similar uh, endpoint. But the path they get there can be different. I'll, I'll elaborate on it in a minute. If we think of uh, you know, our base case or bull case and what we define as the slump bear case scenario, they all share kind of a common idea, which is that inflation will come down uh, and it's going to be much lower in 18 to 24 months. So think about by the end of 2024, inflation is much likely, is likely to be much closer to like 2%, you know, within the Fed's kind of you know, price stability you know, objectives. Where they really differ is that, you know, how much does the Fed actually have to hike to get there? Uh, because the Fed is going to hike to do what's necessary to bring inflation down. And so how much do they have to hike? And then also, you know, uh, how much economic pain will that entail? Uh, and that's where kind of they vary, you know, in a in a base case, I think, you know, and we'll, we'll talk in a minute about, like, you know, what the Fed is likely to do. 
but it's sort of along the line what is what they've already laid out this year uh, in terms of the number of hikes to the rest of this year, uh, potentially like 100 basis points or more hikes this year, potentially you know additional hikes next year, uh, you know slowing of growth below trends, potentially a rise in the unemployment rate a little bit from from current levels. So whether that entails a proper recession or not, that's you know kind of gets in more to the almost semantics, but definitely some economic pain there. Like that, think of that as sort of a base case. The bull case is that inflation you know comes down you know quite rapidly faster than the market is pricing faster than we expect because you know maybe commodity prices come down, supply issues really alleviate, and the market, the labor market, it's been very hot. You know that kind of cools without really any rise in the unemployment rate enough that you know things kind of move in a very favorable direction. The Fed is able to kind of pause much earlier, uh, and you don't really experience a lot of economic pain. In a slump bear case scenario, you know, inflation stays elevated. You know, the, there's kind of core measures don't come down easily. The Fed has to keep hiking beyond perhaps what the market is, is currently pricing to so like a Fed fund rate of, say, 4% or even higher. And ultimately, that, that triggers, you know, a much more conventional garden variety recession where the unemployment rate potentially could go up to, like, from four and three and a half percent to five and a half, six, six and a half percent, something like you typically get in a, in a recession. Um, the fourth or scenario or the second bear case scenario, which we call a head fake, you know, how it really kind of differs from the other bear case scenarios is the inflation dynamics, because it's uh, it doesn't necessarily assume inflation has to come down kind of quickly or, or easily. And it's also just difficult to interpret or forecast how inflation will evolve. We know that's a very difficult thing to predict in the best of times. Right now, it's complicated by the fact that we have sort of two dynamics driving inflation. One is pandemic distortions and pandemic kind of related inflation that does appear to be moderating. Uh, and we're seeing that in things like, you know, used car prices, other goods prices that are starting to come down quite rapidly. But then there's also an aspect that, you know, we could be kind of, you know, later cycle clearly, uh, and we can get typical late cycle inflation pressures building. The unemployment rate is very low, wage growth is, is elevated, they may not abate easily. So as these forces kind of, you know, move in different directions, you know, the market could get optimistic about inflation coming down. Things could sort of, you know, kind of go higher for equity markets and risk assets. But it turns out that the other forces kind of, you know, work in a, in a different direction. Even the Fed potentially can get fooled by that, so, although I, I'm skeptical of that, uh, that, that possibility, given what they've laid out today. Um, but what it means is that there's a bit of a head fake, and it's sort of we think inflation is getting better, but it turns out that those underlying cyclical inflation forces are still quite elevated, even as the pandemic ones come down. The end result is the Fed has to kind of keep hiking more into next year than, presum- than is presumed, and that again leads to a recession. So the difference in the two bear case scenarios is more about the timing of like when does an inflation problem kind of become resolved and when does the Fed really kind of aggressively deal with it. The head fake one is sort of a, is a later time frame. Now you mentioned the probability we assigned to it. You know, we see 50% on sort of our bear case scenario, 20 on the bull case, 20 on the slump bear case, 10 on the head fake bear case. What it means is that there's essentially 30% on the bear case, 20% on the bull case. So there is a kind of a downside skew in, in how we see things kind of playing out. Now, everything I've said is about the economic outlook. If we translate this for the markets, what we're assuming, and even in a bear case scenario where things end up being kind of okay, um, you know, at worst, maybe a mild recession uh, or ri- modest rise in unemployment rate, equities measured by the S&P 500 index, you know, you know, by the end of June of next year, they're at 4,200. Right now, we're at 4,100. So close to flat, being a very marginal increase from current levels. Certainly, equities are not going to stay flat. That time period, there's going to be a lot of volatility. But in this environment where, again, the Fed is looking to tighten financial conditions, you know, that kind of slow growth, earnings outlooks could be, be downgraded. You're likely to see equities kind of range bound. 
and 4,200 is probably sort of the high end of the range that we're going to experience. Something like 3,700 is the low end of the range, and sort of equities will chop around in that space, give or take a little bit, at least you know for the time until we get you know, more clarity one way or another how inflation is going to evolve and what that means for the Fed. So even if the economics end up being okay, there's just not a lot of upside that we see you know over that horizon for, for equity markets, and the same applies to other kind of risk assets. Whereas the interest rates kind of stay where they are, maybe kind of moderate a little bit because by the middle of next year, we should kind of either have had a recession uh, or, or kind of, you know, coming closer to the end of the recession if it were to kind of materialize in that case. So that's how we kind of think about it um, because the markets had been and still are kind of largely pricing in a softish landing scenario. So they're kind of pricing in that base case outcome with probably higher probability than we would have assigned to it. Something, let's say, closer to 60, 65% up to like a week ago whereas we're saying maybe it's only about a 50% chance of that materializing. So that's, again, why a lot of that sort of news, the better news is already kind of reflected in market pricing. Jason, thank you for breaking out those four scenarios for us. Helpful clarity as to how the market, the macroeconomic environment might take shape in the months to come. You did make mention of the Fed a few times. I know after the monthly letter was published back on Friday, uh, we did hear on Friday morning from Fed Chair Jerome Powell, he did deliver a speech at the Jackson and whole central bank symposium, which was a highly anticipated event at times market moving last week leading up to the speech on Friday. So what did we hear from the chairman, Jason? What are some takeaways you can share with us and some reflections? Well, Powell's speech was short, sweet, and it had a very clear message that he wanted to convey to the markets. I think it was a total of nine minutes, which for a Jackson Hole speech from a Fed governor is unusually short. And basically, you know, what he said is that it's the Fed's priority and responsibility to bring inflation back down to 2%, and they won't stop until they achieve it. Uh, and that may lead to some economic pain, which they said they're prepared to bear, you know, below trend growth, um, higher unemployment. He never explicitly said a recession. I think they're not going to, you know, kind of, you know, unless they're explicitly going to you know, say we will try to induce a recession. But clearly, if they're kind of trying to, you know, use language that suggests that's the possibility, and we think that's necessary in order to, to achieve the result that we need to achieve to bring inflation down. Powell did cite, you know, kind of three lessons from history, primarily from the 70s, but really, you know, we can go back, you know, 50 years plus of central bank history and market uh, dynamics, economic growth, inflation, to sort of, you know, kind of infer what he's implying. And the three lessons that kind of inform just what I said in terms of what the Fed says they intend to do. Uh, one is, which is that central banks, you know, can and should take responsibility for delivering low and stable inflation. It's clear that part of the inflation story for the past year has been kind of related to these two problems on the supply side, supply bottlenecks. We've seen commodity prices spike higher. That's contributed to higher inflation. There's nothing the Fed can do through monetary policy to bring oil prices down you know, on its own through supply side. What they can only really influence is the demand side. So that could, in theory, give them an excuse to say, well, we can't control commodity prices. Therefore, we shouldn't try to you know, uh, you know, get rid of inflation that's commodity-related Powell's point is that it doesn't really matter why inflation is high. Our job is to create price stability, and we will kind of achieve that objective. We know from history that that's what we need to kind of focus on. That wasn't apparently the case in the 1970s. The second lesson from history he cited was that the public's expectations for future inflation can play an important role in setting the path for inflation. Now, so the good news so far is that inflation expectations appear to be well anchored, and we also even got some data this morning from the University of Michigan that kind of reinforced that point. But I think the idea that he's reiterating is it's really critical that, you know, that we stay in that direction, that if inflation stays elevated for in the coming months, that that doesn't change because if it does, then it becomes much harder to reverse. So they're very kind of conscious of 
getting the public to believe that we are in a low inflation environment. Because in simple terms, you're either in a low inflation environment or you're at high. It's not sort of shades of gray. And right now, if you know the market still believes ultimately we're in a low inflation environment, that's good. But if it switches to this is a persistently high inflation environment, that becomes much more difficult for the Fed to deal with. And so they have to kind of acknowledge that. And that leads to the third lesson from history, which is they have to stay the course until the job is done, meaning they can't sort of pivot, they can't sort of ease back uh, on their hiking or cut rates until they're kind of convinced and it's clear that inflation will come back and stay in the 2% range. In the 1970s, you know, the, the criticism of the Fed was that they eased back when there was a recession, a slowing growth, rising unemployment. Inflation had moderated, but what happened is that inflation ended up going back up again and then it ultimately led to you know, a much deeper recession in the early 1980s when the Fed governor at the time, Paul Volcker, raised rates to almost 20%. Like just to, you know, we're going to have a very significant recession to finally kind of squash this. Um, they want to avoid that problem. And so by doing it, I think, you know, kind of a key takeaway from Powell's comments is that they need to stay restrictive, you know, for some time and they can't be premature in reversing, you know, policy. Uh, you know, up until, you know, recently in the, in the past couple of weeks, the, the market was pricing in, the Fed debate would be done almost by the end of this year and cut as soon as March of next year. Even before Powell's speech, he had, you know, the market was moving back towards kind of undoing some of the cuts they had priced in for next year. But that was clearly the kind of, you know, his speech was intended to say, we, we may stop hiking at some point next year, but don't necessarily assume we'll be cutting before the end of next year just because growth is slowing unless we're convinced that inflation really is back sustainably to the 2% target. Uh, so if we kind of take away, you know, what was their reaction versus market expectations, you know, people were anticipating and preparing for a, you know, a kind of a hawkish message. And I think what the, the Fed basically conveyed is they kind of really tried to push back against the you know, expectations that they would pivot sometime soon. It was interesting to see the market reaction on the fixed income side. You know, after a little bit of initial volatility, it's kind of, you know, rates weren't up that much, you know, in the hours that followed because ultimately the market was kind of prepared for that scenario. Equity markets clearly you know, took it uh, you know, harder being down you know, uh, you know, more significantly, at least in, in the initial response, because of uh, you know, the Fed basically saying financial conditions loosen, we need to kind of retighten them, i.e. equities almost have to go down to some extent um, and to ensure that we achieve our goals. So I think that was the kind of you know, how the markets kind of took it. It was prepared for it to some extent, but not entirely. I think just sort of, it really ultimate sort of acknowledgement that, you know, a point I made at the start, that the macro and market regime that we're in of, of inflation is too high. Uh, the Fed has to tighten financial conditions to cool the economy, bring inflation down. That's not a great environment for risk assets. That's kind of you know, how the markets reacted to ultimately the speech. It's kind of just a reminder, this is the dynamic that we're in right now. Jason, appreciate the color on the market response. I recall on Friday at one point, equity markets across the board were lower by 2 to 3%, but very helpful to hear some takeaways, reflections from what we heard from Fed Chair Powell. So considering the latest messaging from the Fed, uh, keeping in mind as well, Jason, the base case scenario you outlined for us a bit earlier in our conversation, what is CIO currently? recommending with respect to asset allocation? What should our clients, investors keep in mind? Well, first is to, you know, not make big market directional bets. You know, our base case essentially assumes markets and equity markets in particular and risk assets in general will be somewhat range bound. And where we've been recently is probably at the higher end of that range. Uh, until we get clarity on inflation, you know, improving, you know, it's unlikely we're going to see a sustained bull market start. At the same time, if, if a deep recession is, is unlikely, we don't think that should, you know, has a really high probability. 
to see significant downside where you really want to de-risk us also feels like the appropriate strategy at this point in time. So no big kind of directional bets, but we will get volatility um, and, and we're going to see markets kind of chop around given the data. So the Fed is very much data dependent. So as the data comes in in ways that are often kind of unpredictable, it's not always a smooth kind of you know downtrend for inflation or for the labor market and growth holding up okay, you're going to see you know, more market volatility. So be prepared for that. Uh, a couple of changes we made in our HUSU, you know, preferences in specific areas are consistent with the idea that what we're not suggesting de-risking, it's a good time and, you know, the appropriate strategies to be more up in quality, not taking a lot of more speculative risk in your portfolio, both on the equities and fixed incomes areas, but other asset classes as well. And also, they by get incrementally more defensive. So within fixed income, we had a most preferred view on preferred securities, and we took that down to neutral. Preferreds have done well in the past couple months. You know, the spreads had widened, and from the June levels until very recently, they compressed quite a bit, uh, back to a level we think is now kind of you know, sort of fair value, and the risk reward becomes less attractive. We'd rather, at this stage of, of kind of the, the outlook, given what the Fed could do, kind of go up in quality. In this case, um, you know, perhaps reallocating to you know to back to kind of safer government bonds. Uh, within equities, one of the sector changes they made with U.S. equities is to upgrade consumer staples from neutral to most preferred. Staples is historically a defensive sector and would expect its, its relative earnings versus the overall market to be better going forward because of that defensive nature. And its relative valuation is still reasonable, even though it is a defensive sector. And, and you know some of those defensive sectors kind of got a little more expensive as people crowded into them. But we still think, given its nature, this is kind of a, a, you know, a, the appropriate kind of course of action. So when you think about equity allocation, the equity sector allocation, it's doing kind of a little bit more defensive versus cyclical even though overall we wouldn't recommend some underweighted equities in your portfolio. Now, where we still like, you know, things like value and commodities are kind of tied to the view that in our base case, you know, growth will be okay, uh, that it should sort of kind of muddle through to some extent. Inflation will come down, but overall nominal GDP, you know, should still be you know, at a relatively elevated level versus, you know, recent history. Interest rates should stay elevated. All that tends to favor value stocks versus growth stocks, where we have a least uh, preferred status. Um, commodities, uh, you know, from a fundamental perspective, still look like, you know, they're undersupplied, whereas demand could be okay. And so, again, thinking about some of the, the pullback we saw just in the past couple of months, the direction of travel for, I think, for commodities, by and large, is to kind of grind higher. Uh, certainly in our kind of base case scenario, in a bull case, but even in a situation where inflation proves to be sticky, part of that could be kind of commodity-driven. So even in the head fake kind of bear case scenario, how commodities can perform kind of well in that. So, again, it, it, provide, it provides kind of good diversification to the portfolio. But overall, these are not, you know, kind of major changes to the, the, the allocation guidance that we've been recommending throughout the summer. They're more sort of adjustments, you know, here and there. Again, getting a little bit higher quality, a little more defensive, especially after the moves you've seen, uh, you know, throughout the early summer where we had a pretty strong kind of risk asset rally. Well, Jason, very productive conversation to begin the week. Thank you for dropping by top of the morning to share with our listeners, our clients, CIOs, latest thinking, as well as asset allocation guidance. I will point out to our clients, our listeners, the full UBS Houseview publication suite for the month of September, including the CIO monthly letter is now available for you up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for clients of UBS. Of course, please contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy directly. Though, Jason, thank you again for your time and insights. As always, have a great week. You're welcome. Have a good week. 
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.